going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning, and uh, we've been in this series that we've entitled The Five Solas, kind of a different kind of sermon series that we've done, uh, where we're focusing in on a historical event, an event that happened uh, long after the time of Jesus and long before the time we live in today. You see, the year 2017 is the 500th anniversary of what is called the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that was a moment where a Catholic uh, priest, a monk named Martin Luther, came to a realization that the church of his day had lost the gospel. It had began to believe and put its hope and its trust in other things. And alongside him were men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and John Huss and John Wycliffe, other men who would come and point out injustices and struggles they had with the church of their day and long and, and desire to go back to being a church that they would see more clearly uh, through the writings of the New Testament. And out of that time and the injustices and some of the sins of the day in, in the life of Luther that he saw in his church came five Latin statements. Five Latin statements that would become the benchmark and evaluating tool of, of what a true and real church is all about. You've been hearing about these each and every week. We've talked about that a true and, and real church puts its final authority in the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, that we believe that it is through faith alone. We can't do anything else to get our salvation, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone that gives the forgiveness of sins. It is by God's grace alone. It is God's unmerited favor that you and I can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is through Christ alone, that which we'll talk about this morning, that it's not through any other means, it's not through any other mediator that we can be made right with God except through His Son, Jesus Christ, who's the only way, the truth, and the life. And as you've heard already, in which Travis is speaking about at my campus today, it is all for God's glory alone. We don't get the glory as individuals. The pastors don't get the glory. Village Bible Church and its campuses don't get the glory. It is God alone who gets the glory for the redemption of men's souls. And so these Latin phrases are phrases that uh, were under attack in the day of Luther. But we're going to learn, as we have been learning, that they're under attack today. These issues and these struggles are real and true in the year 2017 as they were in 1517. And that's why the pastors got together and said, let's dedicate five weeks in the summer to commemorate the work that is done. We are forever indebted to Martin Luther because he helped to remind us of what the gospel and what the church is all about. But then we need to remind ourselves this morning that that battle is still waging on. As we look at these five solas, the campus pastors uh, made an agreement, kind of what is our goal through this series? And I want you to know there are four kind of themes or goals that each of us have wanted to preach as we've gone to each of the campuses. Number one, we want to address the historical side of things. This was an event in church history uh, that shook the world. The Protestant Reformation is one of the single greatest events in human history. Whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, it's an event that would radically change the world and how people viewed their understanding of God, how they understood worship, how they understood how to live. It's a historical event. Number two, we wanted to make sure we address that it's a deeply theological event. Martin Luther wasn't a priest in, in, a, in his church, and he didn't look at the carpet and say, I, I want red carpeting instead of blue carpeting. I'm out of here. I'm leaving the church. He didn't say, you know, they're playing too many hymns or too many praise songs during the worship service. I, I'm going to leave. He didn't say, you know what, I don't like the color robes that we have to wear. These weren't preferential issues. The Protestant Reformation were deep and seated theological reasons how we come to God, how we receive salvation, how we worship, how we understand leadership within the church. These were the things that Luther was struggling with. I want you to also understand that they are biblical things. What Luther wanted to go back to was that, that we would understand the church and, and our salvation and, and our engagement with God from a biblical perspective, not from a group of men who would make up rules and regulations, but ask the question, is it in the Bible? And as a Bible church, we've long asked that question, right? 
Anytime anyone gets up and preaches the word, if it's myself, if it's Travis or any other, we always need to ask the question, where did you find that? Where are you getting that? And we, as Luther did, wanted to make sure we were receiving that which God has placed before us in his holy word. Finally, we want it to be applicational. And what I mean by that is you could say, okay, Tim, why are we doing this history lesson? Who really cares about 1517? Who really cares about Martin Luther? We're a non-denominational church. There's really no uh, importance uh, to us with regards to this. And I would say each of these solas that we've talked about that were an issue then are an issue today. And my hope is to show you that sola Christus, in Christ alone, is under attack like never before. And how we are to apply the truth of what God says through his word about his son Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior and Lord of all, and how we need to live in response to that. And so this morning I want to look at a couple things with your patience and my hope, your profit, that we can go through it. But let me ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, we ask as we open your word this morning that you would teach us But you would help us to understand, first of all, who you are. Lord, today, if someone is being introduced to Jesus Christ as Lord of all, that they may bow the knee and worship him as their Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray for us as believers who have known this truth, that we would begin to apply this truth that Jesus, in fact, is the only way that we can have a relationship with you. Let us live that out, both before other believers and non-believers alike. To you be the glory for all that is said and done in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2001, on September 23rd, the United States was going under a spiritual reawakening. For those that don't remember, 2001 was the year that September 11th attacks took place. And the church was reeling, I'm sorry, the church, the country was reeling as a result of what had transpired in Pennsylvania, New York City, and Washington, D.C., And there was greater church attendance over the last two Sundays uh, since 9-11. There was a resurgence that people seemed to be connecting with God in a way they never had. And of course, who could blame them? A great tragedy had taken place. People were broken and hurting. And they were turning back to their God. They were turning back to the God looking for answers, looking for hope, looking for solace in a time of great tragedy. My heart was filled with great joy when I would learn that on September 23rd, just two weeks after the attacks, that Yankee Stadium had been reserved not for a baseball game, not to pay accolades to guys like Joe DiMaggio and Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. No, it wasn't going to be about baseball. But on that Sunday afternoon, two weeks after the attacks of 9-11, Yankee Stadium would be filled to the fullest for a prayer meeting. As a Christian at that moment, I was starting to get excited. Could this be the beginning of a third great awakening? Could this be a time where we as a country would once again see our errors, confess our sins, and turn back to God? Well, as I saw the crowds gathering and and each of the broadcast news channels broadcasting what was going to transpire, my hope was lifted that God was going to do great things. But i got to be honest with you, my hopes were dashed. And the reason my hopes were dashed was the moment that the first individual took the stand who stood behind the pulpit. You see, I would have thought they would have gotten an individual like Billy Graham or some other prominent Christian leader, a shepherd of the people who would stand up and say, put your hope in God, put your trust in Jesus Christ. But as I said, my hopes were dashed when the MC, the master of ceremonies for that prayer service, would not be a pastor, but would be Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey, the talk show host, who is known for her pluralistic view of God, would preside over a prayer service that would invite all kinds of pastors, all kinds of priests, all kinds of rabbis, all kinds of imams, and all kinds of, uh, of monks of all uh, sorts of religions and beliefs. And here's the thing that was absent. Never in the entire service was Jesus' name uttered. 
In fact, CNN uh, was reporting on this, and, and I remember it, and I went back, and I was so grateful that we have the Internet so I could go back and, and, and remember what, what I had heard to read it with my own eyes. Martin Savage, who was the correspondent of CNN, who was covering that event, said the following. He says, as I've watched this service take place, this is after the service, he says, I was struck with two words that seemed very much opposed from one another but have become symbolic to us in these last days in the United States. Those two words are diversity and unity. That sounds good. That sounds, that sounds you know, like we can agree with that. Martin Savage goes on. He says, today we have seen what we will one day see in heaven. I really like what he's saying. That's, that's, yeah, that's right. We're going to see all different kinds of people and all that. But here's the problem. He goes on. He says, you see, in heaven we will see so many faces from so many different races, from different places and backgrounds. We could be in agreement with that. Here's the problem. And he says, from all different kinds of faiths. And he goes on and he says, and yet they were all holding hands, united in voice, at times sharing tears together. Now listen to this. Seeking the same God yet in their own way. I'm not sure I agree. I know I don't agree with that. The world saw what a singular belief in your God alone can do, he says, destroy. So if you believe your God is the only God, if you believe your God is the right God, Martin Savage says that leads to destruction, that leads to bad. But seeing, he goes on, that our faiths, though many and diverse... That because of love and charity, we can reach out in our own way and yet find the same God. And that same God is reaching back to us in love and comfort in our time of need. You see, on September 23rd in Yankee Stadium of 2001, Sola Christus was under attack. We as Christians uphold that Jesus alone is the way to salvation. Oprah made it clear in her remarks. Listen, though we are of many different religions, remember this. We are all climbing the same mountain, she says. All climbing to the same summit to meet God. The problem is we approach the mountain from different directions. But it doesn't matter because we get to the same spot. Sola Christus is under attack. Now, as we understand the Reformation, we need to understand that this was an issue for Martin Luther as well. And we need to recognize then, and write this down in your outlines, then the Battle of Sola Christus in 1517 was what I would like to call the uh, means of salvation. In 1517, Martin Luther, again, a Catholic priest and monk, he was serving in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. And he was serving not only as a priest, as a parish pastor, but he was also serving as a professor in one of the seminaries. He was up and coming, a young uh, rising star in the Catholic Church. He had the opportunity of all opportunities to go from Germany and have an all-expense-paid trip to the place that every Catholic priest would want to go, Rome. Rome being the holy city of the Roman Catholic Church. Rome being the residence of the papacy, the Pope. Rome being where the College of the Cardinals was. This was, in essence, to go to a place where, in essence, heaven could be found on earth. Luther writes in his own memoirs and diaries that the excitement overjoyed him. Like a young boy, he thought with great passion with every step of the joy of seeing the things he had only heard about in word. When he got to Rome, his heart was broken. He writes in his memoirs that he would find himself seeing priests, fellow priests, instead of ministering to people visiting brothels. He would see priests that would do things of spiritual necessity for the sake of money. He saw the state and the church gathering together and combining forces to marginalize the poor and oppressed. And this great joy, this great excitement of seeing Luther in a place that he had longed to be, his heart was broken. Where is this church? 
Where is this church in preaching the gospel? Where is this church on doing right? Where is this church and its leaders in turning away from sin and turning away from unrighteousness and being patterns and pictures of holiness? His heart was broken. But his, heart, his broken heart would turn to a heart of anger when just a couple years later, a man would come to his local village in Germany where he was pastoring. You see, in 1517, the Roman Catholic Church had a huge building campaign going on. If you've ever been to Vatican City, one of the most important places you will visit, one of the most awe-inspiring places you will visit is St. Peter's Basilica. If you ever watch a a Christmas Mass or an Easter Mass uh, at the Vatican, you will see St. Peter's Basilica, one of the most beautiful and one of the largest churches ever made with human hands. Well, that building was under construction. It would be the single greatest building campaign up to that period of time in human history. Well, if you're going to build a structure like that, you're going to have to raise money. You're going to have to come up with it. And just as a couple years ago you raised funds to take care of your basement and remodel the basement here, the Catholic Church also said, we've got to raise money. So they brought a guy, a guy named John Tetzel to be the leading guy to go to the people and to produce the money that it would take to build this great place, this great church, if you will, where the Pope would celebrate the Mass each and every Sunday. So John Tetzel goes from city to city, and he ends up finally in Wittenberg, Germany, where Luther is at. And Luther is just blown away by what he sees. You see, what John Tetzel would do is he would bring a a troop of actors, and they would put on a show everywhere they went, every village they would put on the same show. And the show, the play, the production was of people in agony, burning in the flames of hell. Uh, Of those who have written about what they had seen, the eyewitnesses of it say it was one of the most horrific experiences they had ever faced. Hearts were broken. People were in genuine fear. And here is why. At some point in the production, it would be reminded of them that these are your family members and your friends and your loved ones who have passed away. They're dead. And now they are burning in a place of destruction and agony. It was said that people would, be, uh, would break out in hysterical weeping and sorrow. By the end of the production, Tetzel would come and he would say, this doesn't have to be that way. You know, you can change this. Think of the rapt attention of the listeners who now are thinking about their family members who are uh, now gone before them and are in a place of agony and destruction. Tetzel says, listen, it doesn't have to be this way. You can change it, and here's how you can do it. If you would only give to the building of St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope has given a special indulgence. If you give a certain amount of money to the building of St. Peter's Basilica, you can get a certificate from the Pope himself that then takes your loved one and releases them from hell and puts them in heaven. As a result of that, how how long do you think the line was? My goodness. If I could buy my my family's way out of hell, I, I would do it. And Luther saw his congregation one by one by one going and putting hard-earned money down, believing their church leaders told them, if you do this, then your uh, loved one will be released from hell. The way he would do it, you know, he didn't pass offering plates at the time. He brought out a, a large casket before the people. And the large casket served as the offering box on that day. And he had a saying that he would use from town to town. And he would say this, As the coin in the coffin rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And you see, what Luther saw was something that was outside of the Scriptures. We read nothing of that in the Scriptures. And what I want you to know this morning is in 1517, it wasn't the question that Jesus was alone who saves The question was, how do I, with Jesus, save my soul? I want you to know this morning that the means of salvation, sola Christus, is under attack when we follow these counterfeits. Write these down somewhere on your outline sheet. First of all, 
When someone says to you, I believe in Jesus, but I believe that the only way I can be saved is to believe in Jesus and go to church. And so there are people today, and maybe here this morning, you're here because you think that God's keeping attendance records. And so when you die, you say, yeah, I believed in Jesus, but I also want you to know, God, I went to church every week. I I had perfect attendance. And because I had perfect attendance, you're going to let me into heaven. That's one counterfeit against sola Christus. Notice number two. Some people believe that it's Jesus, yes, but it's also my baptism, and it's taking communion each and every week. And so you made sure you got in the waters of, commu- uh, waters of baptism as quickly as possible. Because you're like, yeah, I know Jesus is my Savior, but i got to do some stuff. i got to make sure that I get wet in baptism. i got to make sure that I take communion each and every week. That's an attack on Christ being alone, our means of salvation. Some believe that it's Jesus, yes, but it's Mary. It's the saints, and so we pray to Mary, we pray to the saints, and we we pray to them, and we say, we need your help to get salvation as well. Jesus alone isn't enough, and so we go to these wonderful and devout people who have now passed away, and we say, we need you to give us that little extra credit we need so that we can be found in God and found in our salvation. And finally, you will see Sola Christus under attack. When someone says, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also know i got to do some good works. i got to do some things. And so they are perpetually living in this place where they're making sure that their good outweighs the bad. And so they're doing all of these acts, and they may be noble and great acts, and making sure they're serving at the church, and making sure they're giving at the church, and make sure they're taking care of the elderly and the poor and the hungry. And the reason why they're doing this isn't simply out of obedience, but to make sure, God, look at all these things that I did. Sadly, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us that many will come on that day and say, Lord, look at all that I did. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, Sola Christus was under attack then because the question was, what does it take to get saved? And people said, Jesus plus something else equals salvation. Martin Luther and the scriptures even more importantly say, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. How about today? How about today? Well, this issue that Luther dealt with is still alive and well today. We see it. I will say that there's even a greater attack on Sola Christus from another perspective in our day to day. And today, the issue isn't the means of salvation. It is the mediator of salvation, Who saves us? Do we even need Jesus in the first place? On September 23rd at Yankee Stadium of 2001, we need to recognize people said, you don't need Jesus. In fact, Jesus was absent from that prayer meeting. We can get to God. We don't even need to go through Jesus. And how that began to take place is where our text comes into play. Caitlin read for us, uh, starting in verse 22, I want to start a little farther back in verse 16, and then we're going to draw out where Sola Christus was under attack in Paul's day, as it is today. Notice what it says in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And so they took him, because he was preaching, of course, Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. So Paul is waiting for his friends and his disciples to come and meet him in Athens. And as he's sitting in Athens, he is blown away by all that he sees. And what he sees in Athens is these people are religious He goes into the temple and he sees that they have got an idol for everything. 
Bible scholars say that there were hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of different idols for different gods. You name it, you had a god for it. If you could see it, whether it was weather, whether it was a season, whether it was an emotion, you had a god. And what we see is, is that these Greeks were pursuing God in their own way, and they weren't doing so through Jesus Christ. And it is Paul who articulates that it is Jesus Christ alone. Now, here's four things that I want you to see. What does the world say? What does the world say about Sola Christus? What does the world say about Jesus? Just as was in the problem with that prayer service in Yankee Stadium, today... People are saying, I don't need Jesus to get to God. So what do they do with Jesus? Write these down. Number one, they reduce Jesus. They reduce Jesus down to being a prophet. They reduce Jesus down to being a prophet. And they do so by redefining him. They do so by, by making him something smaller. Notice in verse, uh, uh, let's see here, verse 16. It says, your, your city is full of idols, he says. But he says, I I want you to notice something. I want to tell you about my God. Now notice in verse 23. He says, for I have passed along and observed all the objects of your worship. And I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. I think it is important. Luke tells us exactly what the inscription says. And I want you to notice that when it says God, in Luke's description, it is with a small g. That's important. Because what they were saying was, listen, whatever you bring to us, whoever this Jesus is, we're okay with this. Bring a new God. We have plenty of gods, and we found a new God. Let's give him a place. But what we're going to do is we're going to put a small g on this God because he's going to be something less than the Son of God, the name above all names. We're going to reduce him. He will be something smaller. And what do people do? Number one, they redefine or, or reduce him to being a prophet. One-seventh of the world's population believes that Jesus is a great man, that he's a prophet. I'm speaking of Islam. In fact, uh, when we were building our new addition at the uh, Sugar Grove campus, we had an architect who was an imam in the uh, Muslim faith. He was an imam at the uh, place of worship that he attended. And he came in with some of the prints, a wonderful man named Faisal. And he came in and he was dropping off the prints and and we, we introduced ourselves, and he asked who we were. We said we were pastors, and he asked what we do and why we do it. And every time we would talk about Jesus, which is what pastors should do, right? Talk about Jesus. Every time Jesus' name would be uttered, Faisal would say, Blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. Every time he would interrupt us, we would say, why are you a pastor? Because we love Jesus. Blessed be his name. Well, what do you do? We tell people about Jesus. Blessed be his name. Just every time, man, he revered the name of Jesus. And we said at the end, the reason why we do this is because if people don't know Jesus, they will not know the Savior and Lord of all. And this man who revered the name of Jesus said, uh-uh-uh, no, no, no. Oh, you are mistaken, my friends. Jesus is a good man. Jesus should be a revered man. Like Moses, Jesus is a prophet. But Jesus is secondary to the greatest of prophets, Muhammad. And he said, listen, you are wrong. You are mistaken. You have missed it. Don't give Jesus a place he does not deserve. He is not God. And of which we said, the scriptures tell us he is. You see, there's a lot of people who love Jesus as a prophet. They love Jesus as a good teacher. They love Jesus as a social agent for change. But the second you take Jesus from being this small G God to being the supreme God, the God that we confessed in the creed and the God that we sang about in our songs, this cornerstone, when we reduce him, the world says, that's great. Way to go, Aurora Campus. You're with us. But when we announce full-throated support that Jesus isn't just a prophet, but he is the Son of God, begotten by God, he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the world pulls their flag, if you will, in football and says, foul, penalty, you're out of line. Number two, notice they redefine, but second, notice that they realign him as a partner. 
notice that in the text, they give, they're willing to give Paul a place for his God. Yeah, bring your God into the temple. Set him up. We'll put a a little statue of him. We'll put a little nameplate on him to the unknown God. We've got a place, and he is with every other one. And so what they do is say, listen, as long as you're okay with him being at the same level, everything's okay. Have you ever noticed, by the way, when you're watching TV or you're watching a, a talk show, Someone will inevitably come on and and a religious conversation will take place where someone will say, I love Jesus. That's wonderful. That's great. Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm so glad your faith is of such value to you. I'm so glad everything uh, that you believe is, is helping you through your struggle or trial. But if you notice when they begin to articulate, now listen, the way I believe is the singular way of belief. Everything falls apart. For those that are football fans, just think of Tim Tebow. Think of all the jobs he lost, all the opportunities that he lost. In fact, NFL teams didn't even want to touch him. Why? Because he was so pronounced that Jesus was the only way to heaven. They didn't want him. They didn't want to touch him because they'd say, listen, if Tim Tebow or any Christian says, yeah, Jesus is just like everyone else, every other great teacher uh, in human history, we're okay. But the second we say Jesus is the one and only, then the hissing and the intolerant cries come out. They want to realign him as a partner. And if we keep him on the same level, everything's fine. If we elevate him at any point, the world will cry foul. Number three, they will seek to relegate him to the past. Notice in verses 24 through 30, they said, listen, we'll give you a place for your small g God, You've got a place. We'll set you there. But notice, in Greek mythology, in Greek uh, theology, if you will, the gods had not done things in the present. It was always the things they had done in the past. The reason why they were known as gods is because they had done something in the past. And so Paul says, listen, I see you got a lot of gods. And a lot of your gods supposedly did some pretty amazing things in the past. But here's the difference between your God and my God. My God's alive. Twice we see that he says he spoke of the resurrection, and that ticks him off. Wait a minute. Whoa, wait. You're talking the resurrection. You're telling me your God's alive? You're telling me your God is active? Notice what he says in verse 22. He goes on and he says, I'll start with uh, verse 24. He says, the God that you worship as unknown, here I proclaim to you, the God who made everything in the world. He goes on, notice, present tense, being... That's important. Lord of heaven and earth, notice what he says, does not live, present tense. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, see, since he himself gives, present tense, to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Going on, he's determined and fixed the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should, present tense, seek God in the hope that they might feel their way, that's present tense, towards him and find him, even though he's actually not far from us. Now going on, it says, listen, in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked in the past about this God, Jesus Christ. But now, present tense, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has future tense fixed a day. Listen, this is very important. What Paul is saying is, is we don't worship God simply because he did some great things in the past. We worship God because he's doing things in the present. We worship God because he's going to do great things in the future. Amen? And we worship and we adore him because he is a God who is working. He's a God who is active. He's a God who is directly involved in human affairs. He's not a God that we look at the highlight reels from years ago and say, yeah, he was a great player. No, he is a God who today at this very moment at the right hand of the Father is presiding over the affairs of the cosmos. And we worship him. We don't relegate him to the past. Some will come to you and say, listen, Jesus was great in his day. He was a good guy, but he's long gone. And we can go and we can uh, see the places where he was born, and we can go and see the places where he ministered, and we can go to the places where he died. 
and we can leave it at that like we do with our presidents, Washington and Jefferson and, and Lincoln. But Jesus, we worship because he is active, not relegated to the past. Note, finally, the world says we need to re- reassign him to one people group. So notice in the text, it says that the people are, are asking in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers converse with Paul. And they said, what is this babbler wishing to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. He's preaching another people's God. Not our God, another people's God. Have you ever had a conversation? I have a family member that this is how our conversation goes. So you're a pastor. I am. And you preach the Bible. I do. And and you preach the Bible. And what's the Bible about? Jesus. Okay, I like Jesus, she'll say. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a a great agent for social change. Jesus was an altogether nice guy. And she'll say, and what do you do with this? I tell other people they need to follow Jesus. That's really nice. That's great. And how's it going for you? It's changing people's lives. That's awesome, she says. I'm glad, and here's the statement that you've probably heard. I'm glad you have found something that helps you. I'm glad that you found something that works for you. I'm glad that Jesus can help you. I'm glad Jesus works for you. But then my response is, well, Jesus commands you to live for him as well. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I'm not going there. I'm glad he's going to work for you. I'm glad you got this little life preserver you call Jesus, and that's happening for you, and it's working for you. But listen, it's not working for me. I got my own device. You see, we relegate people to one people group, Jesus to one people group. We say Jesus works for one group of people, but he doesn't have to work for any other. Are you noticing that Sola Christus is under attack? Are you thinking through the conversations you've had with coworkers or family members or neighbors when you've shared Jesus and some of their opposition to Jesus? Notice, Sola Christus is under attack, and so here's the problem. It's under attack in culture, and I'm sure Travis has told you this. When you see something under attack in culture, it only takes a matter of time before it becomes under attack in the church. And churches are abandoning this. Churches are abandoning this idea that is Jesus Christ alone. I was at a, uh, an event where a, uh, a church, a mainline Protestant church, uh, was holding an event, and I was interacting with the pastor of that church, and the pastor got into their car, and I was walking away. I saw on their bumper sticker, this is of a pastor, the following picture behind you. Coexist. Now, if you don't know, each of these symbols are symbols of major religions or major ideologies. And notice, at the very end is the cross, the Christian cross. And the response is, in our time, listen, you can believe what you want. You can have your own Savior. You can do it. But can't we exist? Can't we believe all these things get us to God? And I was blown away that the pastor of that church who has devoted, I would think, their life to preaching Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection would give his life to that, would never say that we coexist in this way. It's under attack within the church. Well, where do we stand? Let's move quickly. I don't want you to think we're going to be stuck here until after 12. So let's move quickly through these. Where do we stand? We stand on Scripture alone, right? We stand on God's Word alone. And what does God's word have to say? Write these passages down as I share them with you. Number one, we stand that Jesus isn't just a messenger, but he's Messiah. John 20, uh, verse 30 and 31 says, All of these things have been written that you may know Jesus, the Savior and Lord of all. And so what the Bible says is, listen, Jesus isn't uh, just one way you can get to heaven. He's the only way you can get to heaven. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets spoke of as oracles of God that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one. Number two, Jesus isn't just a servant, but he's Savior. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son 
that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How do we not perish and have everlasting life? It is through the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus come to serve? Yes. Is he simply a servant? No. He is Savior. He is the only Savior. Notice next, Jesus isn't a good, just a good man. He's the God-man. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Had John the Gospel writer there stopped, we would ask the question, who's the Word? Well, in verse 14 of John chapter 1, we are told that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That we behold the glory of the one and only who became flesh on our behalf. The Bible's clear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who we are to worship, praise, and adore because it is through Him alone we have redemption for our souls. Notice next, Jesus isn't a, just a prophet. He's the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a passage we read all the time around Christmas that he is the uh, Prince of Peace. But notice within that, he is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is the wonderful Counselor. And he is the Prince of Peace. How do we find redemption? How do we find peace and wholeness in this world? It is through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Notice finally that Jesus isn't one way to God but the only way to God. Notice out of the words of Jesus himself, John chapter 4, verse 6, he tells his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Definite articles. What that means is there is no other way, there is no other truth, there is no other life. I'm it. I'm the ball game. I am the sum of all uh, quotations within that. So I am all this. And then he says, no one, underline that in your Bible sometime, no one. Is Jesus intolerant? You betcha. Is Jesus alterly exclusive? God wouldn't have it any other way, right? He says, no one, not a single person then, not a single person now, not a single person in Asia, Africa, Europe, or the United States, or any other place in this world, no one can get to God, he says, except through me. It's through Jesus, him alone, of which I will say this, you can write this down, Jesus isn't just some name in the past, but he's the only name. We read this scripture, Kelsey did it for us earlier this morning. That there will be a day, listen, there will be a day, and it's a time of God's choosing. He has fixed the day, Paul says in Acts chapter 17, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? That's why we live. That's why we worship. That's why we praise. That's why we serve. We serve King Jesus. So where does it send us? Let's close with this and I'll be done. Where does it send us? What are we to do with this? Because right away we can say, wow, Tim, I believe this. This is, this is great. This is good stuff to be reminded that Jesus is all that we have and all that we need. Where does it send us? It cannot simply just stay in our hearts. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is alone the one who saves then we must first recognize that we must put our rest and our trust and our hope in Him. And so maybe today you have fallen prey to this idea that maybe it's Jesus and something else. you got to get rid of that something else and put your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus alone. Uh, the songwriter says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that? Do you know Jesus in that way? I got nothing else. So give me Jesus. Give me Jesus today. Give me Jesus tomorrow. Give me Jesus in the morning. Give me Jesus in the evening. Because without Jesus, as Jesus told us, without him we can do nothing. Are you resting in him this morning? Notice a couple things from the text. 
Number one, you want to know, do you believe in sola Christus? Don't just say you do. Ask some questions about yourself. Number one, are you provoked? Are you provoked? Notice in the text, verse 16, it says that when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That word provoked literally is a, a word that speaks of convulsiveness. His insides were turned upside down, if you will. And it isn't that he's angry. It isn't a convulsion that leads to agitation, but to action. He sees people. He sees all these people worshiping the wrong God. And he believes in sola Christus, that unless you put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, you can have your faith, hope, and trust in something different, but if you don't put it in Jesus, you're going to hell. And his spirit is broken. His heart is broken. So let me ask you this morning, as you are engaging with your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, and they have a different God, they worship something different, are you heartbroken that they are lost and in need of a Savior? Are you provoked to the point that you say, I am compelled to tell someone about them? I need to tell them about Jesus. Number two, are you provoked? Number two, are you present? Sola Christus says, if Jesus is the only way, then i got to tell people about him. i got to go and i got to go reach people that don't have Jesus. And here's what we do, and the devil loves this. We come to know Jesus and we spend all our time with Christian people. But the question is, is do Christian people need Jesus? No, they've already got Jesus, right? What, what people need Jesus? Unbelievers. And so notice he's in the synagogues and he's in the marketplaces, the text says. And every day he's with those who didn't believe, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They didn't believe in Jesus. He went to where the unbelievers were because he said, the only way those people will hear about Jesus is me. What places, what marketplaces, what schools, what neighborhoods need to hear about Jesus? What workplaces need to hear about Jesus? Are you present there? Are you present in those places? Or have you quarantined yourself because of the fear of sin and evil in this world that you have forgotten unless we go and spread the good news of Jesus they will never know? Are you present? Number three, are you peaceable? Are you peaceable? Notice in the text that it says that, uh, verse 18, they conversed with Paul. I want you to know in the text, nowhere does it say that uh, Paul yelled at them. You stupid people. You don't believe in Jesus? How can you not believe in Jesus? That's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard. I can't believe God would have created such imbeciles, right? He doesn't say anything like that. He converses with them. Paul lives out what 1 Peter 3.15 says, that we are to give a reason for the hope we have in Jesus Christ, but to do so with gentleness and respect. And so we don't need to beat people over the head. We don't need to call them names. We need to tell them about Jesus and do so in a winsome way. Are you peaceable? Are you preaching? Are you preaching? Verse 18 and verse 22, it tells us twice in our text that he stands before people and he preaches. One of the things that we do, and the devil loves it, is we stop short in our worship, or I'm sorry, in our evangelism. So we have a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And we say, well, i got to show Jesus to my neighbor, so I'm going to shovel their driveway. I'm going to rake their leaves. I'm going I'm to help them out when they need help. I'm going to be the best neighbor I can be. And that's awesome. That's important to do. But what good is it for your neighbor to have the best neighbor in the world who's a believer and you never tell them about Jesus? You see, if we don't tell people why we are the best neighbor, why we're the best employee, why we're the best classmate, why we're the best friend to them, the glory will inevitably fall on us instead of the one that has done that change in our lives. And so maybe you have this idea, I'll just be the best that I can be, and, and, and God will, will shine his light through me, and they'll know. No, listen, how will they know if they have not heard? we got to preach the good news. Paul didn't just hang out with them. He wasn't the best citizen around them. He preached the good news that Jesus Christ went to a cross, died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you know him? Do you worship him? Finally, are you prepared? I love that the Bible isn't a fairy tale. I love that Luke doesn't say when Paul did this, all the Greeks and all of Athens all bowed down and worshiped Jesus. Because we'd be like, well, that's never going to happen for us. 
But notice there are three responses. Write them down very quickly. Number one, we had people that outright rejected him. They say, who is this idle babbler? He's crazy. Where is he coming up with this stuff? And maybe you've professed Christ and you've spoken of Christ in your workplace or in your neighborhood and people just go, do, 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 crazy man. I don't know where he's coming up with this stuff, but he's crazy. She's crazy. Well, they thought Paul was crazy as well. You will have people that will inevitably say, you've lost your mind. You're an idle, crazy babbler. But notice the second response. The second response is those who were receptive. Notice in the the text later on, verse uh, 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they rejected. But others said, this is important, we will hear you again about this. They didn't reject, they didn't receive, which we'll talk about in a moment, but they were receptive. Some of your neighbors are saying, listen, you're not crazy, but I'm not ready to join your church. I'm somewhere in between, and we think we've been rejected. Well, they didn't receive Jesus, so I failed. No, they're they're receptive. Talk more. Share more. It has been said that it takes a person seven times to hear the gospel before they fully understand it. So maybe you're on two or three. got to keep presenting it. you got to keep proclaiming it. And notice finally in the text, there were those who received it. There were those who received it. He names them. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. And it says, and others with him. They believed They joined him and believed. There will be some that will join and believe. Our neighborhood right now, I believe, is going under a a, a revival. We are seeing uh, teachers in our school come to know Jesus, which is so exciting. Some of our neighbors have have been attending Village, and and now they want to be baptized. Now they want to believe, and they want to trust, and they want to share that with the world. And, And we've been rejected, yeah, and we've been had some that have been receptive, but it is so exciting to see people receiving Jesus. That's what we're so excited about at the Aurora campus. People are receiving the message that Christ alone is the forgiveness of sins. Today, Sola Christus is under attack. And the reason why is because the devil doesn't want Jesus to get any of the glory. Are you preaching him? Are you trusting him? Are you resting in him? You see, he's our only hope in this world. Our hope is Jesus Christ. That's why here at Village Bible Church, we preach Jesus alone. Why? Because that's the only way we can find God. That's the only way we can have peace in God. That's the only way we can have salvation in God. That's the only way that the world we put back together is through Jesus. And so do you know him and are you proclaiming him are the applications this morning. I hope you do. Because he is the greatest thing we will ever come to know. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for your people, their desire to hear from your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak in a profound way to us this morning, using the examples both of Martin Luther in our past and the Apostle Paul here in the Scriptures, that we would recognize and know that you alone are the God who sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to change us, renew us, to make us like you so that we may one day have eternity in heaven. Thank you for your gift and your provision. Now we ask that you would send us forth to be proclaimers of that good news, to be proclaimers of that truth, that we might overcome evil with good, the good of the gospel. Now send us forth, Lord, in peace and in fellowship with one another. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.